the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, Tuesday, March 9th, as we head into hour two of our daily three hour tour. It is a tremendous and high privilege to bring back an old friend and welcome back to the airwaves of Phoenix, Robert George, Professor McCormick, Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton, Professor of Politics, and Director of the James Madison program the hasidic have this idea concept that the world is kept in balance and on course due to the thinking acts and teachings of 36 individuals and i have thought that our intellectual world and western civilization is equally preserved by people probably not more than 36 of them, and that Robert George is one of them. I have been privileged to be a student of his for many years, though never in his official classroom. Robbie, welcome back to Phoenix, and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Seth. You're a dear, dear old friend, and those were very, very kind words. Well, you are a dear friend as well and a great teacher. I remember how I first met you. I just sent you an email. I was nobody, and you wrote back and sent <laughs> me a bunch of your books, and I've been learning from you ever since. Robbie, oh, the co- kind of you to remember that. Uh, yeah, it was about 25 years <laughs> ago. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um, the issue of freedom of speech is something that has been intimately important, not only to my profession, but obviously to yours and academic freedom. And it's been announced recently that the organization, the Academic Freedom Alliance, which you were part and parcel of founding, has come to the fore to help defend freedom of speech, particularly at the college campuses. Talk to me about this organization and why it's necessary and why you got involved in it. Well, our organization, the Academic Freedom Alliance, officially and publicly launched uh, yesterday. Uh, Our founding members uh, are 200 academics at universities around the country. We are diverse in every way. Uh, Perhaps most importantly, we are ideologically diverse. We are conservatives and we are progressives and we are centrists and we are unclassifiables. We are united by one and only one thing, and that's to the principle that for the truth-seeking enterprise of scholarship to be carried on, and for professors to be non-indoctrinating teachers, that is, genuine teachers, the university environment has to be suffused with the spirit of free inquiry, freedom of speech, freedom of thought and discussion. And I, we, as we look at campuses around the country, we see that spirit being suffocated. There's a groupthink, there's a conformism, there are official dogmas, sometimes enforced by university officials, sometimes under stated rules, but more often being suffocated. The spirit of freedom, of free inquiry, of truth-seeking is being suffocated by an environment, by a kind of tyranny of majority uh, opinion, the stigmatization of anybody who dissents from the prevailing orthodoxies, which for the most part are secularist and uh, liberal or progressive. Uh, There's an attempt to cancel people who question 
uh, the dominant points of view. And so we're united, members of the Academic Freedom Alliance, to just push back against that. We're going to fight it every step of the way. We have pledged that an attack on one is an attack on all. Too often, academics have been isolated. When when someone says the quote wrong thing or says the right thing the quote wrong way or fails to say something that it's now considered compulsory to say, the woke mob, the cancel mob comes after the person and the academic administrators feeling the heat, feeling the pressure, take some disciplinary action or even fire the professor. He's left isolated and alone. We're not going to leave him isolated and alone anymore. We're not going to let him be like a zebra that's devoured by a by a group of lions when the rest of the zebras just flee and don't circle the wagons and protect them. We want to be more like elephants. You know, if a, if a lion uh, pride attacks a group of elephants, the elephants don't flee. Um, if there's a baby that they're targeting or a small one or one that's injured, the elephants will circle around and they'll push back against the lions. Lions almost always end up with a meal when they attack zebras. They almost never end up with a meal when they attack elephants. Academics have been zebras too long. We need to become elephants. Or dolphins surrounding a human from sharks, right? I love that image. Isn't that amazing? It's an yeah. amazing thing to see. It I, is. I saw that on uh, television the other day right? on one of the nature shows. Right. No, I. this is brilliant because I, I do think um, that for so, – I, I, God, you've been talking about this for years, and I remember you talking about – you and I had a disagreement about whether students and – non-tenured academics should challenge when they know it could cost them their career. And you, and the problem really came down to a lot of the people wouldn't challenge against conventional wisdom because there was no one to defend them. They would be left out hanging to dry for the, yeah. for the jackals or for the mob. It is so important for people to know that they, someone has their back or a group of someone's have their back. Robbie, uh, Professor George, does it, does it, does it, does this translate downward into the recruitment process of academics who might be looking for tenure track positions but have perhaps written something that is infradig or out of sync with the convention? Or is it right now centered on protecting those already in these positions who have been attacked? Might it look towards expanding the diversity, intellectual diversity of faculty down the road? You bet it will. Uh, that's a very important goal of ours. One of the problems right now is that people who dissent from the dominant orthodoxies, the prevailing dogmas, are screened out mm-hmm. of academic mm-hmm. life. Sometimes on job applications for young academics, there are these so-called diversity statements. Right. They function as loyalty oaths. Right. They ask you to explain how uh, you will support the cause of diversity and inclusion, when the reality is is that it's simply functioning as a way to make sure that nobody who deviates from the party line on issues of race or sex or gender or so-called gender identity or whatever have you are completely excluded from academic positions so that the group think the orthodoxy remains uh, unquestioned. We've got to push back uh, against all of that. Let me tell you something else we've got to do. We not only have to send a message to young academics that it's okay to dissent, that it's okay to challenge the prevailing wisdom. And we need to send that message to students as well. It's okay. In fact, we encourage it. There's one other message we have to send, and the Academic Freedom Alliance is going to be sending this message. And the recipients of this message are going to be academic administrators all over the country, the ones who cave into the woke mobs, who unleash the disciplinary process against people who dissent. We're going to make people who do that, academic administrators who do that, the most famous people in academia. And they're not going to be famous for anything that's laudable. Good. They're going to be famous for cowardice and cravenness and for violating the norms of academic freedom 
freedom of speech to which they pay lip service. Good, because that, that, that is the moral high ground, and they have turned the tables to make it sound as if we who challenge conventional wisdom are, um, are, are, are on the moral low ground. Now, in your statement and in what you said on this show a few moments ago, Robbie, Professor George, truth-seeking enterprise of scholarship, to me that is the heart at least of the problem outside of academia, the left and the big tech censorship that we see going on. Truth-seeking is not a value that the left seems to have right now, at least from where I sit. They think they possess the truth, and we who challenge it, whatever it may be, it can be COVID, it can be minimum wage, it can be masks, it can be immigration policy, you name it. They think they possess the truth and that anything we say, we conservatives, I won't make you me, but anything I might say and get canceled for, is anti-science, is anti-truth, is not to be protected speech. This is the ethic I see right now. Truth-seeking is just not in their purview because they think they have it, oddly enough. That's the way I see it. Uh, well, well, Seth, I'm a conservative myself, uh, but it's important for us not to paint with too broad a brush here. Fair. There wouldn't be an Academic Freedom Alliance except for the fact that there are people in the center and on the left who do share our basic civil libertarian values, mm-hmm. who do share our belief in the freedom of speech, and who do perceive the dreadful problems that we now have for academic values as a result of the suffocating of that spirit of freedom of thought and uh, discussion. Uh, my friend and colleague Cornell West, who has joined me as one of the founding members, is a good example uh, of this. Uh, we probably have uh, 40% of the founding members, I'm, I'm, I'm roughly speaking now, who are on the left side, on the progressive side, probably have another 40% or so on the conservative side, and the remainder are somewhere in the middle or unclassifiable. Um, but the real problem, the main problem, not the only problem, but the main problem is woke ideology, which is so dominant, that particular kind of progressivism or leftism that is so dominant on campuses uh, today. And in the broader culture, for example, in the tech sector, where you see things like Amazon canceling Ryan Anderson's wonderful book. Robert, do you uh, do you have one more segment in you? i got to take a hard break. Can I do the, a little more of this on yeah, the other side? Sure do you have can. just a little more time? Absolutely. I will grace the audience with your uh, dulcet sounds from your banjo, and we will be right back with Robert <laughs> P. George. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There's an unarticulated or unwritten rule in conservative uh, intellectual circles and uh, academics that if you're a conservative who gets in trouble, your first call ought to be to Robert P. George. Um, If you have a conservative cause, you want to succeed. You want Robert P. George involved. If you want it to fail, you don't want him involved. He helped start this new organization, Academic Freedom Alliance, to defend free inquiry and free speech on our college campuses. It launched yesterday. 
and we're talking to Robbie George, uh, old friend of mine and teacher of mine. Read everything he writes, folks. You'll be smarter because of it. Dr. George, you were just getting into this notion of the greatest challenge or maybe the wholesale challenge to free inquiry being this notion of wokeness. You were just beginning to get into that and how you see it when Amazon cancels a book where other things are thrown down the memory hole. One might even say the 1776 Commission. My God, it was the first thing the Biden administration took off the White House website. Talk to me more about this wokeness challenge to academic inquiry. Well, uh, Seth, there were a number of years when I think the uh, basic problem for the hard left in academia, the basic challenge that they presented was that they uh, denied the existence of truth. Mm-hmm. They denied the possibility of truth. Mm-hmm. Everything was just all about power, and there was no such thing as truth, and we should all struggle for power, and they should win. Uh, there's been a kind of metamorphosis of that, a sort of change. It's no longer their belief, at least their stated belief, that there's no such thing as truth. Now it's that we know the truth, and we know it infallibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they right. moved from pushing right. moral relativism yeah. to a fanatical moral absolutism. Yeah. The problem is not that they believe in truth. That's good. I'm glad for that move. It's better than believing that there's no such thing as truth. Sure. But when you forget that we grasp truth, when we grasp it, only fallibly. Mm-hmm. We are all fallible. We could be wrong. And that means we need to be open to challenge, open to question. We need to be doing business in the proper currency of intellectual discourse, which is a currency consisting of reasons and evidence and arguments. There's a currency of intellectual discourse, of truth-seeking discourse, in the same way that there's a, an economic currency. You know, our currency in the United States is dollars and cents. In Britain, it's pounds and pence. Well, in intellectual discourse, it's reasons and arguments and evidence. But the trouble with the woke is they don't want to do business in that discourse. They already think they've got the truth. John uh, McWhorter, uh, and they've got it infallibly, John McWhorter is a wonderful critic of, uh, of wokeism. Uh, not a conservative. The linguist. Uh, the linguist, uh, the linguist right, at Columbia is University. now over yeah, at that's uh, right. yeah, Columbia. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so John John uh, McWhorter puts his nail on the head and he says, what we've got here in wokeism is a religion. Now, there's nothing wrong with a religion, but what we've got here is a militant and fundamentalist religion. Mm-hmm. And militant fundamentalism is always a threat to freedom, whether it's Christian fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism yeah, sure. or whatever it is. Sure. Uh, when it's secular progressive or woke fundamentalism, it's a threat. And we see that threat manifesting itself in the suffocation of the spirit of freedom, of free inquiry, of free discussion, of free thought, which you need, Seth, I keep coming back to this, as a condition of the truth-seeking enterprise. We need it individually as scholars and as students, and we need it institutionally as colleges and universities, or for that matter, high schools or other schools. There can be no truth-seeking absent its conditions, and its conditions include freedom of thought, of speech, of discussion. Jonathan Rausch once proposed that every college in the handbook have a message to incoming freshmen saying, you will hear ideas that will offend you, you will hear ideas that might make you mad, you will hear ideas that might make you cry, you will hear ideas that will challenge everything you've known until now. We call this education. The only problem with that is I, I, I think too many schools wouldn't wouldn't actually put that in their handbook. But that's the point you're making, uh, yeah, isn't it? That's, that's right. how you get there. Yeah, that's right. Too many um, too many universities have actually devolved into catechism 
classes or catechism schools, Sunday schools. No, there's a a place for catechism classes, a place for Sunday school. It's not the university. The university is in a different sort of um, business. It's it's contrary. It's antithetical to the mission of the university to engage in indoctrination, and too often that is what we're actually uh, doing. You know, Seth, you you quote uh, those lines there from uh, Jonathan Roush. They're very good. Uh, I myself put now on my syllabus, on every reading list for all of my courses, I put a statement on the importance of free speech. I tell the students that no matter whether they're conservative or, or liberal or where they are in the spectrum, they will be challenged in this class. They are going to read positions that they uh, that they don't hold, that challenge positions they hold. The reason I know that for sure is that on my reading lists, I always require students to read the best arguments for all the competing okay. sides of the issues, the best ones that are known to me, they're going to read stuff I agree with, mm-hmm. but they're going to read stuff I radically disagree. I, I assign, for example, my colleague, uh, the work of my colleague Peter Singer sure. on abortion and infanticide. Well, he's as far from my pro-life positions as you can possibly sure. get. But I don't want to hide my hide that work from my students. I want them to engage it. I want them to consider it. I want them to learn from the interaction between somebody, the work of somebody like Singer and the work of somebody like myself, sure. who strongly advocates the pro-life position. I wonder if you might email me that statement. I'd love it, uh, Robbie. I will do that. Thanks. I'd also encourage, I, I, I'm out of Facebook slots now, but but I'd encourage your listeners, if they're interested yep. in my ideas about these things, to follow me on Twitter. I'm at McCormick Prof. Yes, uh, that's sir. my, I guess it's at McCormick at Prof. McCormick or you can just look Prof. up my name, exactly. you know, Robert P. George, and you can find me. But I do things on Twitter like like uh, post links to my syllabi. And Let me ask you one other question. Like I only have a minute left, and you tell me if I'm all wet or not. In the eight, I'm always interested in political conversion stories. In the 80s, a lot of Democrats became Republicans over the Democratic Party's response or liberal response response to communism, the Soviet Union, the Soviet threat. I've had this notion that we're going to find a lot of liberals or leftists becoming more conservative over this issue of free speech on the campus, such that you said there's about 40 percent of your organization that would consider themselves liberal leftists. I bet in the next three years when they see what their side is up to, I bet about 10 to 20 to 30 percent of them become conservative. You think I'm all wet? Uh I, I can't say for sure that that's going to happen. <laughs> we'll check in in three years. <laughs> I'll call but, but I, I can't say you're. I can't say you're all wet because okay. I've already seen some of it. Yeah, I've already seen I bet. Some of it. I bet. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we're also seeing some people on the conservative side move leftward, and that mainly has to do with reactions to Donald Trump. Yeah, that I can Donald appreciate Trump. too. Sure, of yeah. course. So there, there's some movement now. You know, there's some uh, ferment. Uh, and people are kind of repositioning uh, the, themselves. But the key thing for our organization, we don't care whether you're right or left or center of or unclassifiable. Course. The key thing is that you be a truth seeker, and if you're a truth seeker, you're going to be standing up for the spirit of free thought and inquiry, without which there can be no truth seeking. The spirit That's of liberty, it. as Judge Learned Hand once put it, right? The spirit that is not That's too it, sure that it is right. Sure that it's right. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Seth, thank you for playing my banjo music. I just re- I, When you said you were going to play my banjo music, I didn't realize that you were. And I, I was, recognized yeah. when I heard that banjo tune. That's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm not only a truth seeker, I'm a truth teller. If I tell you I'm playing Robbie George on banjo, I'm playing Robbie George on banjo. Yeah, you can't sing a well, sad I, I, song I, I, on a banjo, Steve Martin once said, and... I think that's right. 
<laughs> well, I want I want your I want your listeners to know that I came by it honestly. I'm born and bred in the hills of West Virginia, grandson of coal miners. So I I came by that banjo picking in the right way. The West Virginia exodus that has given us Robbie George and Charles Kessler. What would we do without you two? <laughs> That's right. God bless you, sir. Oh, God bless you, Seth, and all your listeners. Thanks for having me I on. I love replenishing our social capital when we meet. Come to Phoenix. I'll take you to a steak dinner. I'm Seth. He's Robbie George. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. woman, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, has now accused Governor Andrew Cuomo of inappropriate sexual harassment, in this case a physical touching or a physical encounter. Uh, someone, um, someone tweeted, he's about two women short of opening restaurants to 125% capacity in New York at this point. Uh, that's a jape over something unfunny, but until the Democratic Party, by whom I mean Kamala Harris and Kristen Gillibrand, who were at the leading forefront of attacking people like Brett Kavanaugh based on one claim from high school where the accuser didn't remember the time or place or specifics of the claim, where they led an effort to drive Brett Kavanaugh to a professional death and family embarrassment. Where are they now? It's not one, it's not two, it's not three, it's not four, it's not five. Count them six. Believe All Women was perfectly good and well when it was against a Republican. It was never a good justification. It was never a good moral standing. Ever. But that was their standard. Their standard now is, if it's a Democrat, we will circle the wagons. That means sexual harassment is not important to the Democratic Party. Being a Democrat is important to the Democratic Party. That's what that means. Jeff is in Phoenix. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Seth. How are you doing? I'm well, sir. How are you? Great. Hey, love your guests. Um, I'm encouraged to hear that some people now are uh, in higher positions of uh, fame and notoriety, in a sense, or whatever. They're taking a stand. Uh, I think that's great. I think that might be even a little easier for them now to do that when Trump's not president. So they need, we need to take advantage of that for the next two years for sure. Um, that's an interesting point, actually. It's a little easier when you don't have the when you're not in power or when you're not on the defensive all the time, right? It's a little easier to play offense than defense. It is true well, about the Trump presidency, not because necessarily of Trump in some cases, but not exclusively. But because of the antagonism towards them, we conservatives were often on defense and not offense. Isn't that true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So a couple things here. First, I, I, I have to I, I think about these things and it, it perplexes, perplexes me. Why is it that the only two races in America or in America, or I don't know, in other places, but America, especially on any kind of government forms or anything else, the only two that are defined by color are white and black. All the others are defined by region, where they came from. Oh, that's interesting. 
That's interesting. So it might say Asian Pacific Islander or something like that. It might say. Oh, yeah. Viet- yeah. It mm-hmm. says Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. It says mm-hmm. Hispanic. And mm-hmm. now they actually break Hispanic down into categories. Are you from Spain? Are you from, you know, wherever. Do they go that deep but, now? Do they really? Well, some some of them do. Yeah. Uh, I, I just filled one out for, uh, I think, I can't remember what I was You ever out filled out your gender on Facebook? Uh, I don't do Facebook. You get so, 56 um, choices. Did you know that? Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Anyway, sorry, I, that's they, not your point, you know, like, but anyway. Like I saw one guy, I saw a comedy skit where the guy said he, that day he was identifying as a cat. Yeah. So if you had to go use the litter box, you know, yeah. excuse him. Yeah, yeah. I'm anyway. No, that's an so interesting back, point, but go ahead and fill it out. Fill it out for me. It, it, well, it just shows you what, what that there is a method to this madness. There are reasons that these things are being done, and I say that that is the reason that they're hijacking our language and using it against us and with words they say you can't say this and this doesn't mean this now and this doesn't mean oh that means this and i mean and people kowtow to it so i was i loved your guest and i love he's in that realm and i can't wait to hear more about that but what you were saying a while ago about how by you were doing biden i mean the I don't know. I can't even understand how Saturday Night Live is passing up these opportunities for these kids. Because it's too I mean, true. Guy, it's too true. It's so painful that they have to admit to the fact that they have a president who is not in maintenance and control of his faculties. i got to take a break. You want to hold with me, Jeff? We'll pick it up on the other side. Sure. That's great. Thanks. I appreciate it. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the, the Seth Leapson Show. Jeff in Phoenix was talking to us about some of the woke mentality, but how it plays out with race and heritage. Jeff, you were talking about you were talking about uh, government forms, other forms, too, and private enterprise as well, where in color it's Caucasian or African-American or black. And with everything else, it's some variant of a uh, of a geographic location, right? Asian Pacific Islander, that sort of thing, right? Well, that, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all regional because mm-hmm. that's how you have, they define people as they come into this country mm-hmm. by region of where they came from. Yeah. But and, and I don't even know why the term African American is not used anymore. Right. I mean, and it's a great time. I would say it's a great time to be an African American actor because. Just you can just take that. But anyway, well, let me let so, me add this to the point, Jeff, and see if this is getting at where you're going. <clears throat> Black immigration, African American, particularly African immigration to America, in the past twenty years has increased some seventy odd percent. Millions and millions of Africans have moved to America over the last twenty years. Millions, and it makes to me very very little sense to lump all of it in, to get uh, to lump the whole the whole the whole race together if that's what we're trying to do because there are tremendous disparities between African Americans and their culture from whence they came uh, for example um, Nigerians and Ghanaians and Trinidadians have median households Household income in America well above the average American. Um, Ghanaian Americans, to take one example, earn more than several specific white groups, such as Dutch Americans, French Americans, Polish Americans, British Americans, and Russian Americans, according to Rav Aurora, over uh, who, who studies this stuff. So it makes go- little sense. It just makes little sense to say it's all one culture, all one race, really, doesn't it? 
Well, I don't know why we want to. How I, I refuse to answer it on the census. I, I'm not going to answer Good. that question anymore Good. unless they want to ask me who my ancestors Good. are, and I'll tell them what countries I'm from. Good. Good. Because it's ridiculous. Because they're trying to put you in a box. But just like you said, I would challenge the fact. I would probably say that the majority of legal immigrants to this country make more economic or produce more economically, make more income than most. American. I, I, well, I, there's here. good reason to say that, and we can probably get a definitive answer to it. But already you're thinking about a couple of things when you consider the hypothetical person you're describing. It's someone who already sees room for advancement somewhere else, takes the risk and effort to engage in that advancement, which is in and of itself like educate, like 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 going to a college or university. Yeah. And, and then studies how to do it. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to become a legal American. It doesn't take much effort to hard, become born here. It's it's a curse word now. It's, it's hard work. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's hard work. Now, there's all kinds of things involved in it, but most of it the normal person can do if they just apply themselves. And that goes for everything in life. And that's the sad part about where we're at. I wanted to go back to that part about how long will we go along with this idea of the emperor has no clothes? Yeah. Oh, about Biden's uh, inability to uh, to uh, command his faculties. Because it goes back to your point with your guest a minute ago, because education is the key point, and you've said it several, several times. But if you do not, if people are never educated about what evil is or how evil can, can, can disguise itself as a, as a government system that's going to help everyone and do everything, a workers' party, whatever you want to call all this crap, they will never know that their intentions, their good intentions, are actually contributing to that evil. And that's what we have right now. We have kids that they think, they're, that, they think that by saying we don't want so-and-so to speak here is a good thing. Right. Right. It's protecting, it's protecting people. Right. From, I mean, from an idea, someone? from a concept, from open-mindedness is what it's protecting them from. Yeah, and, what do you, what do you, I mean, for gosh sakes, your mind should be open to every concept well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I think the answer to your question is. What are you afraid of? I think the answer to your question is they're afraid of a conservative position gaining purchase, that is to say persuading some people to buy into it. I think they really are afraid of that. I, I can't well, I envision say, any other say, reason hey. why to shut someone down based on their ideology unless you're afraid people are going to buy into it because it might make sense. See, when I say they, I say there's an entity out there that wants to shut the conservatives down because it it makes them powerful. Yep. It makes them money. It yep. makes all all that thing happen. Yep. But then they're using the kids on campus yep. and things like this by saying, oh, we're protecting you. Right. We're so, sure. These kids are so – it's unbelievable how they just – it's like there's a veil or they lap it up. I don't understand how they don't say – where are the people from 1960 who were saying – Get out of my face. Yep. Free love. They're the ones that are teaching this now. Well, the free They're speech the movement are... was a left-wing movement on the campuses in the 60s. That's what it was called. That's what the Berkeley uprising was. You're right. And now it's turned. Um, those people have now become our grand censors, and we are protecting them from ideas, um, from thought, from debate, from reason, from philosophy. And it's a dangerous thing. It leads people to ask an even more dangerous question. Someone asked me the other day, I'm trying to remember who it was, I was at a dinner thing the other day, Jeff, and someone says, do you think this generation of 17 and 18-year-olds could do World War II? 
could do oh, Normandy? No. It's Maybe a scary fair. question. It's a scary question. Yeah. Because well, we, have dipped, we have dipped a generation of people into Purell and, and, oh, yeah. and surrounded them with emotional and intellectual bubble wrap. And it's what not a good guess, thing. What did your What did your guest say? The type of religion that fanatical religion. That like it's it's a now fanat- wokeness a is a religion. fanatical religion. Yeah, and exactly. fanaticism is not good. In, in any in any, in form, any case, not, in any religion, in, in any, any cult, case, in any movement, no fanaticism is not a good thing. Right. No right. matter everything in in. Uh, what was, Everything uh, in moderation. moderation, sort of. I mean, you you think about what Barry Goldwater said when he said extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, meaning it is not something to be condemned. It's important to remember what he said. Extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. He wasn't saying extremism in the defense of extremism. Extremism in the defense of liberty. Freedom. Freedom of thought. That's really what we're talking about here. Freedom of thought. Freedom of conscience. Without which, without which, you simply do not have a representative democracy and you certainly do not have consent of the governed. You cannot have free elections, fair elections, consent of the governed. You can't have any of that if you don't have freedom of conscience, if you don't have the ability to make up your own choices based on a wide and broad public policy debate. Why not just have a tyranny and a dictatorship? Why not? Why not? If we can't select that idea because we can't utter that idea, then we don't have a democracy. And anything less than that, to the degree of the less, is no democracy. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted we're going to have Hugh Hallman joining us at the top of the next hour, taking your questions and calls, 602 508 0960 is the number. He actually wants to challenge me a little bit on uh, a monologue from last week, so he tells me. Um, you may recall Rob in Surprise asked if I could do a definition of classical liberalism or liberalism, and, um, and I did a monologue on that Friday, uh, last Friday. If you missed it, it's available on YouTube. But... Um, but Hugh uh, wants to disagree with some of my definition of liberalism, and that's fine. We'll do that. That'll be fun, and we'll talk about where we are with COVID. We'll talk about where we are uh, with the science of COVID, and we're going to talk about science generally as well. It's, a, um, it's an incredible thing what, um, what the media has tried to give us in the name of science here and how much they have gotten wrong. I was just reading a write-up of how many statements about COVID CNN got wrong over the last year, all the while lecturing us or those of us who were thinking that we should um, moderate some of our mediation responses, how wrong we were. I don't know that we've been wrong about very much, to be honest with you. I know they've been wrong about an awful lot, an awful lot. And, um, and, and, and we'll detail that. Uh, some of you may have even read uh, Jonah Goldberg's piece in National Review. Excuse me, in the Arizona Republic this morning. He used to be with National Review. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's worth going over how much of uh, the media got wrong 
on all of this. And it's interesting, too, as our last caller, Jeff, put it, how much um, they are protecting Joe Biden on other things. Here's uh, Vox on January 23rd last year. The evidence on travel bans for diseases like coronavirus is clear. They don't work. Three days later, there are now five confirmed U.S. corona cases. Experts say it's no cause for alarm. January 28th, don't worry about the coronavirus. Worry about the flu. January 31st, the Washington Post, the flu poses the bigger and more pressing peril. A handful of cases of the new respiratory illness have been reported, none of them fatal or even apparently life-threatening. The New York Times, February 5th, who says it's not safe to travel to China? Time Magazine, February 7th, it's just amazing how quickly word about this virus has spread. The intensity of the coverage is making everyone panic unnecessarily. Forbes Magazine, February 29th, no, you do not need face masks for coronavirus. In fact, they increase your infection risk. Time Magazine, March 4th, health experts are telling healthy people not to wear face masks. So why are so many doing it? I could go on, but this segment only lasts three and a half minutes. That's the media who says we were wrong. Well, who was? What us? Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back.